Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream And you can holler Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man feel the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't dictate it, it is almost always the case during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. Today is Tuesday, October 20th, 2009, and this is episode 300 of the Survival Podcast. So obviously, I'm pretty stoked today. And today's show is going to be a listener question day, and I figured, you know, what am I going to do for episode 300? And I really don't have any kind of like a cool idea for a special 300 episode or anything. And I thought, you know what, the easy thing to do, postpone uh, the show I did yesterday, and, uh, you know, do a show yesterday on a subject, what I did on Rifleman, uh, and then make today's show about the audience. That's the best way I can make this show special, so that's what I'm going to do. Got a bunch of great questions here. We'll take them in just a minute. Let's not out some housekeeping first. Number one, make sure you're supporting our sponsors. Uh, they support the show. That helps you enjoy it every day. And uh, they are personally endorsed by me. And then they are vetted by my moderator squad on the forum. So if two or more moderators say, I don't feel good about these guys, they don't get in. I don't think anybody else handles advertising that way, but we do that to make sure that they take care of you. Sponsor of the day today, Tea Party Silver. Folks, get your hands on some of these coins. These things are just freaking awesome. And uh, again, I own at least one and probably two of every single coin they make. In fact, I own at least two of every coin they make. And uh, I'll be doing some reviews soon of some products. Maybe I'll show you some of these coins in a review just to give you an idea of what they really look like and how pretty they really are. And they are .99 pure silver. So uh, they are that investment quality silver that you're looking for. So check those guys out. Uh, Next is ready-made resources. Uh, You name it, they got it. All things that you could possibly need to uh, to prepare for the events that we all worry about on a day-to-day basis. Make sure you download their solar catalog. I usually plug that for them because it's great. Um, they have a lot of great stuff. Check them out. Next, get involved with our forum, please. I'll leave it at that today. But if you get involved with our forum, I promise you, you're going to find out that there are a lot of people out there that feel and think the same way that you do. You won't feel as alone in this big world with all this craziness around us. And you'll form some friendships uh, that you'll really have to experience to understand. Uh, that's what I found in our forum. And it's a, it's a blessing that's, uh, that's, that's returned itself many times over. I'm glad we did it. And I'd love to see you there. Next, uh, if you think this show is worth more than 20 cents an episode, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Basically, if every time you listen to my show you think, that was worth two dimes, uh, join the Member Support Brigade. You'll help support the show with a contribution of $50 a year. And you'll get exclusive content content available only to members, including over $70 in free retail value. That includes a $29 lifetime discount membership to Safecastle, one of our other sponsors. So that membership pays for itself on day one, folks. All right, with that, 
We're almost ready to go into uh, the main topic today, but I wanted to remind you guys one more time uh, about Ron Hood and the generous offer that he's made. Uh, Ron was on the show a couple weeks ago, did an interview. He threw out a two-week offer uh, with discount code Jack Spearco, 10% off any of his DVDs. Uh, link will be in today's show notes. And with that, let's go ahead and start taking some questions. Um, this is an interesting one. It's getting about the time of year to start thinking about it. A person lives in my area. Listen, what do I do? to protect my garden from the first frost of the season. Obviously, eventually we're going to get a hard freeze, and the stuff that's in the ground, it's not meant to, to handle, it's going to die. But you, know, you get those first couple frosts that kill pepper plants and tomatoes. How can I basically extend my growing season a couple weeks? What do I do? Do I cover them with plastic? Do I cover them with sheets? What I've found to work best, and you'll probably start to see them in the Lowe's and the Home Depots around the Dallas area very soon, and if you live in more northern parts of the country, they're probably there already, are uh, these, these cover cloths that are made for covering uh, plants for frost. They're pretty inexpensive, and what I like about them is they're very lightweight, so when you set them down over your plants, they're kind of like a floating row cover, and they don't damage your plants. Uh, and just put those, you know, around your, you know, over your bed, and then put something on them to hold them down, or use uh, staples to hold them into the ground, and put them on when you're expecting frost in a given night, and they will generally help out. Uh, even with these lighter, uh, this lighter material, that this stuff's made out of, I found that sometimes it will break things, especially as it gets cold, like pepper branches and tomato branches and things like that. So one of the things you can do is get yourself a couple sticks of like uh, half-inch PVC that's you know dirt cheap, cut it up in some lengths of about two, maybe two and a half feet long, and you can stick these in the ground at various points in your garden to kind of keep the cloth off of direct contact with your plants, and you'll get better results that way. I've used bed sheets. They're heavier, and I generally get more damage to the uh, to the plants themselves. I, I don't like plastic because if you forget to take it off in the morning and the sun comes and hits your garden pretty hard, uh, even though it's cold out, you can pretty quickly cook uh, some of your plants sometimes. So the greenhouse effect, it's maybe a little bit overdone. If I were going to use plastic, I'd use the kind of the milk-colored uh, plastic, the type of stuff you would use on a greenhouse that's a little bit filtered. I wouldn't use clear plastic. Um, plastic, to me, is a little bit harder to work with, especially if it's cold, it gets rigid. If you use the row covers like I described, uh, it's pretty pretty easy to do. And then one more tip I'll give you with them. If you get a couple one-bys, you know, one-by pieces of lumber, and you basically sandwich each end, so you make it almost look like a stretcher you'd carry a soldier with, then they're really easy to just roll up and put away. So maybe if you're 10 foot long, you need a 10 foot piece of one-by and two pieces of it, and that stuff's dirt cheap. And then just sandwich the end, so that it basically you create a border on one side, and you tack those two pieces of one by together, do that on the other side, then the only thing you really need to put any weight on or put anything to hold down are your, your far ends. Um, and then they store beautifully like that. They last several seasons, uh, worth the additional investment just for the ease of use, because then you're going to be more likely, when it's going to be cold, to go out and put them in place. And uh, the reason to do this, folks, is if you can get your plants to survive an extra two or three weeks, they'll give you a huge bounty at the end of the season. This colder weather as long as it's not cold enough to kill them when the plants are mature, it's like a signal that, that kicks their production into overdrive. And a lot of plants that maybe have limped along a little bit in the summer heat all of a sudden will produce very, very well.
well for you if you'll uh, if you'll take those extra steps. So great question. Let's go on with uh, the next one. Here's just a kind of friendly question. What's up with the new dog? Guy says, you know, I haven't heard any details other than you guys got a new dog. Can you tell us you know, a little bit about him, how it's working out, how he's fitting in with the, with the household and whatnot? Yeah, we did get a new dog. Uh, I felt it had been a long enough time since we let Lakota go that uh, it was time to bring another animal into the home. And our, our house just, we have room for two dogs. And, you know, part of my feeling is that if we have room for two, there should be two. Because uh, there's a lot of them out there looking for a home. My wife has always wanted a purebred German Shepherd. And uh, we were going to wait till we moved to Arkansas. But we decided to go ahead and get a new dog now. We went to the pound and standing there is a 15-month-old purebred German Shepherd that's been there for two days and uh, looked at him and said, that's our dog. I mean, I was sold immediately. I had one concern, how would he be with cats? So I took him over to the, the cat area, you know, where they, they keep the cats at the, at the pound. They let me do that, and a little girl got a little kitten out and showed him the kitten. He licked it on the head. Done. He's going home with us. So my wife's like, well, he's so big, and how's he going to fit in with Blackie? And, and, you know, Blackie's been the dominant dog for 12 years, and how's, you know, they're going to have fights and whatever. And I said, you know what, we'll deal with it. I brought him home. They've gotten to a couple scraps, and they've uh, they've both actually shed a little bit of blood. Uh, but just minor things, and it's just dogs sorting themselves out. And, you know, I've got them to the point now where I think that they're going to be okay with each other. They, they seem pretty good with each other. They sniff each other. Blackie He's an old dog. This is a young dog. So, you know, he wants to play. Blackie wants to sleep. And they seem to have just accepted, you know, the fact that now they live together. The shepherd, who we now call Max, because that's what my wife wanted to call him, um, really has no problem with Blackie. He seems to have no problem with any other animal or dog. He seems very friendly. Blackie's taken some time to get used to this. And there's some jealousy, like whenever you bring a new puppy or kitten or child home. That's just the way it is with the other kids, right? So he's doing good. We have taught him sit, stay, lay down, uh, shake, uh, play dead, and to fetch and bring toys back and drop them instead of fight us for them. And we've had him a little over two weeks. So that's quite a bit of progress for a dog that really had no training. He did no sit. He wasn't really, you know, happy about sitting. Uh, we decided to send him to dog school. Um, so Dorothy takes him to dog school on Sundays to learn uh, more advanced techniques and training, I guess. I'm doing that mainly because dogs tend to bond with me and she really wants this dog to be kind of, you know, like her dog as if that's, you know, there's any way to really differentiate that in a household. But she wants more of a bond. So I have her going to dog school because I think it's a good bonding thing. And I abstain from that. So that's the update on Max, the new Spearco German Shepherd. He's a beautiful dog. I'll post some more pictures. Maybe this weekend I'll take him out, play fetch with him, and let you guys see uh, how fast this dog is. It makes me think of the sign with the picture of the German Shepherd that says, I can make it to the fence in 3.2 seconds. Can you? And the only problem with that is I think I need to put with this dog 1.5 seconds. Uh, this dog's like lightning. So another blessing into our household. Oh, and I wanted to tell you guys how he ended up at the pound. He was adopted from the pound as a puppy, and uh, these people took him home, and apparently they had divorce and job losses and things like that, and the bastards, and I'll call them bastards, left him in a backyard locked in behind a gate and just abandoned the house and left him there alone. And uh, 
The shelter has a 100% no questions asked. If you can't keep them, bring them back. We'll take them back policy. And instead of just putting them in the car and taking them back, they, they abandoned them. Fortunately, the neighbor knew where he came from and knew about the shelter's policy, and the neighbor brought him back to the shelter. Uh, so he was abandoned by the people that he trusted. That's that's pretty crappy. Uh, people like that, I think there's a special place in hell for people like that. So I'll leave it with that. So I guess, even though I don't know who they are, they're honorary ass clowns of the week for doing that. such a great talk. But now he's got to get home. So let's go on to another question. Guy says, do I think that things like you know, concealed carry permits, CNR licenses, Class 3 licenses, um, all of those things like that, ways that you can you know, kind of add to your right to keep and bear arms. CNR license, you can purchase collectible firearms, for instance, and act as your own FFL. You can't sell, but you can buy. You can go to a place like uh, SOG and buy wholesale-priced guns without going through a retailer, without paying a transfer fee, things like that. Um, do I think that those things, concealed carry permit, okay, you get this permit, now you can carry 24-7, 365 throughout the state and any other state that recognizes it. These are great things, but are they bait? In other words, is it just a really good way, if you put enough of these things out there like that, to attract enough real gun enthusiasts, that whenever it becomes time to go out and seize everybody's guns and take them all away, um, that you'll have the key players identified. You'll start out with everybody with a concealed carry permit, everybody with a CNR license, everybody with an FFL, everybody with a Class 3 permit, things like that. Well, um, first of all, Class 3 is not a permit. Uh, it's a kind of a transfer fee that you pay one time. If you're a Class 3 dealer, then you have a, you know the, the, the right to, to handle the transaction. Uh, but basically, Class 3, you're just paying a tax and uh, passing a background check. But I don't think any of these are bait, folks. First of all, every time any one of them has been implemented... Concealed carry, for instance, uh, it's been strongly opposed by all the gun bashers and gun haters. If it was bait, they would just kind of willingly, no, we don't think we should do this, but you guys, yeah, whatever, you know, maybe rattle a little bit of saber and let it go. But it's been viciously opposed. Now, if if you want to put something out as bait, you don't viciously oppose it. You oppose it a little bit to put some paint on it. But no, I don't think that's the case at all, because here's what I believe. Every time a new American buys their first gun and makes it personal property and sees it as personal property, the Second Amendment becomes stronger and harder to restrict. See, if you want to take away guns from people and 5% of the people in the, in the nation own and see the need for firearms, it's easy to do. Selling the other 95 on the fact that these people, these 5% are dangerous is easy. And using the majority will against the minority right, which is a danger in any pure democracy, and that's why we're not a pure democracy, is easy. When 40% of Americans own firearms, it's almost impossible to take them away. And if we can get that number to 60%, if 60% of us own at least one gun, the Second Amendment is absolutely concrete, cannot be repealed, because there will never be enough support for it. So whatever puts more guns in the hands of more law-abiding citizens is a good thing, in my view, for the Second Amendment and for gun rights advocates. You know, that's what I want. I want 60% of America armed, at least. I want when a guy has to decide, I'm going to go rob a house tonight. I want him to look at a street and go, there's 10 houses. I have 60% odds of getting my brains blown out if I climb through a window tonight. That's bad odds. I 
I think I'll go find a meaningful profession because this sucks now. That's what I want. I want when somebody robs a house of a 78-year-old lady, her to pull out that old L.C. Smith double barrel, stoked up with some double O buck, and I want her to blow his lungs through his shoulder blades, and I want them to put that guy on the front page of the newspaper and say, this dumbass robbed the wrong house. And I want that to be the case in at least 60% of American homes. So no, fo- no folks, it's not bait. It's not bait at all. It's not designed to make you, you know, display that you are a gun owner. If you're a gun owner, you should be proud to be a gun owner. You should be a member of the NRA. You should be a member of your state rifle association. And any other good gun advocacy, advocacy groups that you support, you should be a member of them. And you should be a proud member of them. You should display the fact. You should have a decal on your window of your truck or your car. Don't hide who you are as a gun owner. That's how they win. To convince you that you need to hide who you are and what you are. That is the game. That is how they take away your rights. When you stand up and say, yeah, I got a concealed carry permit. And if somebody robs me in the street, you know what? Wrong guy to rob on the wrong day. That is how we maintain those rights. So that's my answer on that question. Next question. Where can I get topographic maps of my area? Great question. Number one, really easy to get a basic topographic view of your area. Go to Google Maps, type in your address or wherever you're looking to find an area around, zoom in, get it to the level that you want it to, and switch it to the topographic view. Do that, you have a rudimentary, it's not the greatest in the world, but it's a pretty good topo map. Print that out, print out a satellite picture, and you've got a pretty good starting point for free. Uh, if you want to buy a good printed map with you know ticks and, and azimuths and everything on it that's, uh, that's scalable and usable and on good you know quality outdoor paper, uh, go to usgs.gov and there's actually a area locator. So basically they use Google Maps, you type in an address, and then you click on the push pin and it gives you all the part numbers of all the maps that that area appears on that's available from USGS and you can order those maps in the mail and uh, you can do kind of a better printout version uh, at a place called trails.com and they have a pretty cheap membership fee so there's uh, one free one cheap downloadable and one inexpensive per map if you wanted 100 maps it would get expensive uh, ways to do that now let's talk a little bit about why you might want topographic maps. Um, If you're going to be doing any kind of outdoor exploring and what have you, if you have a map that's not topographic and you look at a route and you go, well, on foot, that's a couple miles or that's a pretty good route and I'm going to take off through here and go to that point, you might think, hey, no problem. Well, next thing you know, you might be looking at a giant ravine or going up over a giant hill and your distance is going to be actually magnified because when you're walking up a hill and walking down a hill, you're actually traveling further on foot than you are line of sight. If that makes sense. If you think about it, if I put a, uh, a 20-foot high hill in, uh, in the middle of a road, and the road is 30 feet across, and you walk up and down that 20-foot hill to the other side of the road, you've actually traveled a lot more than 20 feet or 30 feet, however wide the road was. right? You've traveled up, 10, up 20 feet and down 20 feet at the same time, you know, minus the, the, uh, the angle there. But all I'm, all I'm pointing out is without a topographic map, you can run into a lot of obstacles, things that impede your travel that you wouldn't see, and you don't really kind of have a good feel for the area. So I take topographic 
maps are great. I think a little bit of uh, training on how to use a compass, how to shoot azimuths and back azimuths and things like that go along well with that. And it's great to start out in your area. Get a good topographic map of your area. Find a park or something like that, a small area. And anything that you can do on a big scale with a map and a compass, you can do on a small scale. So if you look at the map and you say, I want to come out at this point of this park or, or what have you, um, and you, you shoot your azimuth and you start taking that course, you make your corrections, and you come out, if you're wrong in this small area, you'll see how far you're wrong. You can go back and do it again. You can get better and better at doing it until you can do it right, and then you can go on to kind of bigger trips. So topographic maps, don't know why the guy was asking why he wanted them for his area. That's one reason I can think of. I think they're a great tool. And, again, uh, you know, USGS is probably your best source of good maps. Uh, they do cost a few bucks, but they're relatively inexpensive, and uh, they're uh, two different options available on scaling, and they are printed on a paper that makes them suitable to use in the outdoors. So that's what I would recommend as a, as a top-quality source. Next question is an interesting one, and I, I may get this not perfectly right, but I'll get it right enough for you to make a decision on what's right for you. Uh, the question is, what is the difference between GMRS uh, or you know family radio or GMRS radio and MERS radio, M-U-R-S radio? Um, I think there's 22 frequencies in GMRS, and GMRS radios are like the cheap ones you see in like every sporting goods and department store, and they make these you know ridiculous claims of 18, 26 miles, things like that. And you know, I don't know if a if a crow farts the right way and they're skipping, it's a dead level situation. Maybe one day, with everything being aligned and the planets lining up, you might get a really long transmission out of them. But they're generally a two mile or less proposition in the best of circumstances. Uh, MERS, you can get a little bit more reach out of them, I believe, but not a whole lot. Distance wise, power wise, they're pretty much the same. Um, you can go out and buy and use any of them without a license, even though GMRS actually does require a license. It's kind of crazy. I don't exactly understand how it works, but if you read the little manual that comes with your GMRS radio, you'll see a thing saying it requires a license. I think the, the license is inherited when you purchase the object. Or, I, I don't know exactly how that works. But either way, for you practically, there's no license for either one. You can go out and buy and use the equipment. MERS has only five frequencies, and it's a lot less used than GMRS. So, one of the big advantages of MERS is that you're less likely to be overheard by people around you or have to deal with people around you crossing your lines of transmission. So if you get a set of uh, these you know, family radio uh, things and you're hanging out in your neighborhood using them to talk to a neighbor, if anybody else is using them, if they happen to be on your one of the 22, the 20 to 22 frequencies you're on, you're going to hear them, you're going to have crosstalk and things like that. Um, MERS is a little bit higher end equipment, a little bit more expensive, not generally sold in department stores, and hence you, uh, you're less likely to have to deal with that and you get a little bit more privacy. It's still open airways. It's not secure by any stretch of the imagination, but you're going to have less crosstalk in effect. MERS also has some unique things that I don't think are available on GMRS. I want to get the guy from MERS Radio on here and he can probably tell you more than I can, but one of the features he told me that MERS can do is, let's say you, cre- you get what's called a base station. And it's basically a radio that sits on a desk or a tabletop inside your house. 
and you have a kind of a larger operation, family farm, something like that, and you have members of the family farm running around, they take a radio with them so they can communicate back to home and with each other. You guys decide on the frequency you want to use. But the other thing you can do are set these things out in the field. These are called sensors. And you can I think it's up to four per base station, and you, you have them set to like sector one, two, three, and four. Well, you set these sectors up with these motion detectors out in the field. And if anything goes in front of them, the base station will sound alert. It'll say, you know, alert sector four or alert sector one. So they can be used as a security tool. Now, to me, that is a lot more uh, than I can expect out of GMRS or any of these cheap things I can buy at, you know, Radio Shack or Academy. So that's just one additional way that I think they give you some additional tools beyond what you can expect from uh, from something along the lines of uh, the, the cheap stuff from Academy. So that's the best I can do with that question. If anybody wants to add to it, uh, chime in in the comments section of today's show notes and uh, let me know what I missed. And let's go ahead and take another question. Okay, next question. Um, person asked me, hey, Jack, if uh, we ever did have, like, major shit hit the fan and um, had to... Uh, Start trapping and, and killing, you know, wildlife in the urban centers. Is there a hierarchy of what would be preferable to eat? Uh, in other words, would it be better to eat herbivores like squirrels and rabbits before you started eating scavengers like raccoons and possums? Um, let me be blunt with the answer to this one. Um, if you're in a position where you have to rely on eating things that you're trapping in urban centers, uh, you eat what you can get. Uh, there's there's no preference at all. In fact, I would say that your preference would be a possum or a raccoon over a squirrel or a rabbit because it's bigger and has more fat and more nutritional value. Um, let's also talk about, you know, what is the... Uh what is the food value of a raccoon? It's immense. It's actually quite good eating. There's, I can't remember the place. There's a place in Arkansas where they have a raccoon festival every year where they cook up massive amounts of raccoon in like a hundred different ways. And the whole town gets together. It's like a town of like 1,500 people or something like that. And, you know, they, they eat raccoon and they have a great big town level party eating raccoon. And believe it or not, the, the Clintons have been to this thing, I think, more than once. Apparently, Bill Clinton enjoys raccoon. And, uh, I think it was Something they did more when he was, you know, running for governor and governor of Arkansas, um, and it, sure there was some politics involved. But uh, if it's good enough for Bill Clinton, you know, it's good enough for us. And I'm not taking a high view of Bill Clinton. I'm just figuring the guy can eat whatever he wants. If he's willing to stoop to eating raccoon, then you know maybe we shouldn't look at it and go, ugh. The reality is, raccoon was a huge food animal for a long time in our country before stigma took over and people decided that there was something wrong with it and we shouldn't eat it. But you know, back in the day when people made money running trap lines, one of the biggest fur producers that were easily trappable and in large numbers, up, you know, it, basically there's never been not many raccoons around. They're, they're a real survivor uh, as a raccoon. And most trappers back in the day didn't just take the pelts and sell the pelts. They took the pelts and sold the pelts, and then they consumed the raccoon. And they also did that with things like muskrat, uh, possum, and what have you. About the only thing you're not going to see this guy eating is a skunk. And I'm sure it can be done and I'm sure if it's done right and the thing doesn't spray and the glands are removed, it's probably not that bad. But, you know, I'm not going to be eating skunk. But uh, just about anything else, I'm willing to give it a shot. And if you're a fur, you know, if you want to go out and hunt, one of the things you can do is hunt fur burrs in times of the year when you can't hunt other things. And raccoons actually quite good eating. I've eaten a lot of raccoons. So I wouldn't hesitate for a second uh, to shoot or take a raccoon uh, for the pot 
that was robbing a garbage can or one that was out in the woods that I was chasing with coonhounds. So I think that in the scenario you're describing, you trap and you eat whatever you can get your hands on. And I hate to say it, but in a lot of parts of the world where the shit is hit the fan on a daily basis because poverty is so bad and all, the most commonly consumed thing in these areas are rats. Uh, I had Ron Hood on recently talking about that. He said, rat is some good stuff. He said, you cook it up in garlic and olive oil and saute it and uh, with some salt and some herbs. And I said, what does it taste like? Does it taste like chicken like everybody says he knows? He says, it tastes like garlic and olive oil and herbs. Whatever you cook it in, it absorbs the taste of that, and that's what it tastes like. So, um, I guess he feels about that the way I do about uh, snails. I actually like to eat snails, escargot snails. And uh, there's a place I, that I get them at pretty affordably, and they're canned. And I have to cook them out on the grill because they do. when you cook them, they do smell bad. And uh, But I cook them in garlic and uh, onions and, and, and butter, and that's pretty much what they taste like. So, um, I don't know. It's up to you what you're willing to eat. But I think if time gets times really ever got tough and you had to eat to survive, most people would stoop to eating just about anything. Anything. And uh, I think we'd be pretty blessed if we could find a uh, good supply of raccoons and possums. Uh, possums, something I've never eaten. And um, when I ran trap line, um, I trapped a few possums, but I really tried to avoid them because they weren't really worth very much money. When I, and this was back when I was like 14, 15, I used to run a trap line. But I targeted mostly fox and raccoons. Fox, we never ate fox. There's just something about eating a dog creature that I don't know. I I didn't want to do. Today I might go ahead and try it. I haven't ever had the opportunity in recent times, but uh, raccoon was always skinned out, uh, cut up, and either uh, cooked right away or frozen and used later on. So raccoon's good stuff. Alright. Interesting question. Let's go on to the next one. Same person basically said, what do you think of mastering a slingshot as a way of harvesting animals? And they like clarified, said, look, I have guns. I'm not opposed to guns. I'll use a gun. But, you know, there's some advantages to a slingshot shots, compact, portable, not likely to be seized, uh, quiet, and uh, for some people maybe it's a better option. They can't afford a gun or they are you know, afraid of guns or whatever. I think slingshots are a great tool. I think it takes a lot of work to master one, but I think a good slingshot in the right hands is a quite deadly tool. I'll see if I can find it. Some of you guys on the forum have seen this, so maybe you can help me find it if I don't find it today when I post the show. Um, a guy, an old man that makes his own handmade slingshots. He makes old style ones, you know, wood with, uh, with rubber and all. And uh, this guy can do things like if there's two Japanese beetles sitting on a leaf, you tell him which one and he'll pick off the beetle off the leaf without damaging the leaf. This guy's amazing. He throws stuff in the air and hit it. So the accuracy potential's there. It just takes a lot of work to bring it out. But it's one of those things I've always thought about getting more involved with and, you know, if I could find some time teaching myself to be better with a slingshot. I think a good wrist rocket and you go out and buy a big pile of real cheap white marbles. Uh, you got a good target site. you got a good impact tool. Uh, I think that's a great way to maybe start doing that. But if you run out of marbles, you can always use rocks or something like that. But you got to get really accurate with the thing to make it a, a, an effective and humane harvesting tool. We're talking small game, and we're talking headshots, and we're talking really small game, like small birds, where if you hit them with a marble out of a wrist rocket, yeah, they're done. But I think that's kind of the level that you're looking at there. I would also tell you to check out Dave Canterbury's creation, the Slingbow, where he's taken and used a thing called a whisker biscuit and taken bands that are generally used for like a spear gun 
and replaced the bands on the wrist rocket with those uh, tied in the whisker biscuit into the uh, slingshot frame and he fires carbon arrows with a slingshot and this thing's pretty dad gone deadly out to about 15 yards um, so that can be used with uh, you know the the uh, what they call them, bunny busters uh, for shooting small game or you can throw a broadhead on it and use it up to you know game the size of deer is it an ideal tool no is it legal in most areas probably not I, I doubt it I know Dave's actually gone on some exotic hunts with it like for like horsekin ram and things like that where you can use any weapon you want he's tested it and it's worked out and the lethality has been proven in the field so that would be some way to take a slingshot and kind of expand its ability and then of course the thing is if you needed to just use it as a slingshot cut two tie rops pull a whisker biscuit off and you are back to shooting you know rocks or marbles or something like that so that's a good way to extend the uh, the capability of something like a slingshot and make it a little bit more lethal and uh, a little bit more flexible so I'll see if I can find Dave's video or a video of somebody making one of those for you as well and see if I can post the link to that uh, let's go we got one more question guy asked me he says hey Jack what is your opinion of the Marlin 1895 lever action rifle and 357 Magnum uh, funny I just mentioned this weapon yesterday on my show about becoming a better rifleman uh, my opinion of it is it's a very good tool uh, it's a very good weapon and it's a weapon I'd like to own in fact you know like most people that like guns I've been to countless gun shops and, and, and gun shows and I've looked at a tremendous number of guns picked them up held them thought about buying them walked away and didn't buy that gun that day I have never thought to myself Jack you should have bought that gun what the hell is wrong with you except for one gun and there was an old hardware store and guns hardware and gun store uh, in Pennsylvania I told this yesterday but I'm going to go ahead and repeat it because the question is applicable um, where this you know I went in and I saw this old Marlin lever gun and 357 Magnum laying up against the uh, wall I talked there and a guy basically taught me how to buying it he said look it's not a good first gun for a kid it doesn't have the new cross bolt safety it'd be fine for you you probably don't need it uh, or want it so I don't want to sell a gun to you just to sell a gun to you to get the kid a bolt action or something like that 7mm 08 or 243 better first deer rifle so I thought yeah you know what he's right and I left and uh, it was a pretty good drive and I thought about it that night and thought man you should have bought that a couple weeks later I drove up there and it was gone and to this day I regret not buying it was very very inexpensive for the gun that it was and uh, I, I think it's a great tool now this person also owns two 357 Magnum handguns that increases the case for buying it um, it's a beautiful little gun and it has some flexibility that's pretty cool a 357 Magnum with 158 grain flat points don't use hollow points at rifle velocities is a damn deadly little deer carbine out to 100 yards there are people tell you that it's not enough gun but when the 357 Magnum handgun first came out um, handgun hunters all over the place went out and took elk with it and, and bigger game than that and until the 44 Magnum came around it was the most powerful handgun on the planet and it was good enough as a handgun but all of a sudden it must be anemic in a rifle so I don't buy into that at all I do say you want a good solid point uh, round when you fire out of it if you're going to use it for mid-sized game. Now throw 38 specials in it and it's very quiet and uh, you can use it for planking and target practice inexpensively. Load light 38 special loads in it and you get a gun that almost sounds like a pellet gun when you fire it. Kind of like my special load for the 44 Magnum. I should point out, I have this exact same gun in 44 Magnum. So I have a huge uh, belief in the frame itself, the gun itself. And uh, that gun has served me well for a long time. So, 
I, there's no reason to recommend that you not buy this gun unless you can't afford it. If money's not a problem for you and you're looking at adding this gun to your collection, I think it would be a great thing to add. And let me tell you, it's surprising what happens when you put a 357 Magnum into a 16-inch or longer barrel and load it up with a max load of H110 powder. If you look at, like, the uh, Lee loading manuals or the uh, Hornady loading, loading manual, and you look at the contender loads for 357 Magnum out of the 16 inch barrel contender, which you've got more barrel length than your uh, Marlin, you'll see that the muzzle velocity of the 357 Magnum approaches or exceeds the muzzle velocity of a lesser known cartridge called the 357 Maximum. Now, the 357 Maximum was built to be a handgun more powerful than a 44 Magnum in a smaller, easier to shoot caliber. And it worked beautifully. The problem ended up being that it, it was in a revolver, a big Dan Wesson revolver, and it burned out the barrel because of how much um, powder burn there was. And it had problems. It basically had to replace the barrel on the dadgone thing. So I think it's still available from one manufacturer, but it kind of went off, kind of went off into uh, obscurity. But it wasn't about ballistics and terminal performance. Everybody that shot it said, this is an amazing hunting handgun. It just has no longevity, and it kills itself. So we, you know, people didn't buy it. People didn't flock to it because no one wants a gun that kills itself. But that round was considered absolutely exceptional. So what's the difference if I take a 158 grain slug and put it into a pistol and fire it at a certain muzzle velocity, or I put it in a rifle and fire it at the exact same muzzle velocity onto the end of terminal performance? The answer is there is no difference. So if a 357 maximum handgun is a suitable hunting tool, a 357 magnum in that carbine is just equally as acceptable as a hunting tool. We have a 357 magnum rifle in the house as well. It belongs to my son. It is a break-action NEF single-shot um, a gun, rifle, 22-inch barrel, and shooting standard, you know, 357 magnum, 158 grain loads. We have the gun sighted in dead on, and I mean take a squirrel's head off at 25 yards. At 50 yards, it hits the bottom of the bullseye. At 100 yards, you can set those orange skeet that you throw to shoot with a shotgun on a berm. And we've got a little four-power scope on it. You take the crosshair, and you put the, the, the horizontal crosshair right on the top of the skeet, and you can break skeet every single shot from 100 yards. Now, if you can hit an orange skeet at 100 yards with this rifle, that means you can hit the heart of a deer out to 100 yards with this rifle. So I think it's a great hunting tool. I think it can be used for small game with light 38 special loads. It can be a quiet tool that way. It can still be damn deadly with 38 specials in it. Inexpensive to shoot, fun to own, lifetime care and support from Marlin, one of the best manufacturers of firearms in the United States. Solid buy recommendation on that. Sorry it was a long answer, but I still have that regret, and I know I love my Marlin 44 lever gun, so it's a thing that I get excited about and like to talk about a lot, even though I try not to turn this into too much of a gun show. And with that, folks, we've wrapped up episode 300, which is really cool. I want to, you know, take a second at, at this this moment where we're crossing 300 to do something I probably don't do enough. Thank you. Thank you for listening to me. Thank you for sharing my show. Thank you for being involved. Thank you to every person that's ever taken even one second to make a comment on the blog. Thank you for being 
being my you know members of my forum, to my moderators who take care of that forum. Thank you so much for the work that you do to keep that forum one of the best online. It's amazing the job that you guys do. You work tirelessly, and I appreciate you. I appreciate every single person, especially those who have ever said, "Hey, friend." Check this guy's show out. It's pretty cool. You're the reason that you're so successful. I want to share something with you. Uh, as of yesterday, we had over 963,000 downloads total of the Survival Podcast. That's people that have downloaded my show through the, the feed. So that means either by iTunes or some other type of feed reader, which is way over a million. But we're about to have our one millionth official download in a show that's just over a year old. A year and what? Three months, four months. That's because of you guys. So thank you so much for that. If you like these question shows, send me your questions. I'll do my best to answer them. Please don't send me questions with deadlines. I need an answer by the 17th. There was a guy that did that, and um, he didn't get his question answered because today is, what, the 19th or something like that. So I figured his answer didn't do him any good. It wasn't a very universal question. Um, send me kind of you know open-ended questions. Uh, I can't guarantee that I'll answer them all. Sometimes people ask a question and I don't answer it. And people are like, wow, he doesn't answer my question. But what it is, folks, is that your question is so open and it's so big, so broad, that I actually start planning to do a show on that entire theme because I can't really answer it in this type of a format. And there's quite a few of those shows being developed right now. Uh, so I'm working on a lot of that. So if you've asked a question and haven't heard an answer, if it's a broad topic, keep an, keep an ear open. You may see an entire show on it coming soon. Um, and with that, I'll go ahead and wrap up today. But, again, I want to thank you guys for helping me make this show successful. I want you to keep tuning in. And I want you to remember, always, the show Credo. Helping you live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. That's what we're all about here. That's what makes us different. And when you share the concepts of preparedness, self-sufficiency, and modern survivalism with people that's a little strange, use that. Tell them that's what it's really all about. It's like, hey... Look, everything I do helps my situation today. And if something goes wrong, I'm going to be prepared for it. That's just a smart way to live, and that's a great way to start living that better life. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't matter. All gets spent